0: good morning so uh, this this week is going to be our official kickoff for our new Sunday School class we're gonna be going over the doctrine of the Holy Spirit I am super excited about this Um, really any subject of theology I'm gonna get excited about but this one in particular um, should be really really enjoyable so uh, it'll really be based on the book the Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson really, really good. This is very terse, very thick, dense stuff, so it's one of those things where you read and then stop and then meditate. You're like, what did I just read? I don't know if I understood that. Yeah, a lot of big words, but not, not to intimidate. It's really good, just really good, good material. So that's what we're going to be working through. And, um, and again, uh, most of the material is going to be quotes from Ferguson, and then I'll be adding in some comments or kind of slow down, ask some questions, kind of work through this material together. So, um, so with that, let's go ahead and just, just, just hop in then. So what I wanted to do is just kind of give like an intro and a little background. And before we kind of hop into this first chapter of the book, I want us to, to do some like some historical work when we talk about the Holy Spirit. So, so let's go ahead and open. So um, on your notes, um, you know what, I didn't even grab my note sheet, but um, uh, perfect. Thank you. Yep. All right. So uh, on your notes, under uh, introduction and background. So I want to ask the question to get us thinking. How should we think about the Holy Spirit? And, and when we think about this, there's several ways that we can think about um, uh, the Holy Spirit in regards to like uh, pedagogy. Right. Like the method. How, how do you teach it? Right. How, how, how do we explore when we think about Christian doctrine and theology? So, you know, there's a couple of different ways. One of those is historical theology where you trace has the church believed and done in regards to interpretation of text, right? And then how has that developed over, over time, right? How have, how have Christian pastors and scholars thought about this, theologians engaged with this, right? But then you also have studies that can be more biblical or theological or systematic theology where you're um, thinking about the text primarily, right? And like, how does, how does the Bible develop this doctrine? Or when we think about systematic theology, right? We're, we're asking the question, what are the right categories when we think about the Holy Spirit? When we take all the texts about the Holy Spirit and then we put them into logical categories, right? What are we going to learn? So there's, there's, there's many ways that we could go about this. So Ferguson, the way that he approaches it in his book, so to quote him, uh, our focus is to trace the revelation of the Spirit's identity and work in a biblical, theological, and redemptive historical manner. Now, we're going to break that down. So, we're going to trace the Spirit's identity and the Spirit's work in a biblical, theological, and redemptive historical manner, right? So, again, those are like the Ferguson, you know, like big words. We're going to break it down. So, when we do a biblical theological study, what does that mean, right? What, what are we talking about when, when we think about that? So biblical theological, what we mean by that is the idea of canvassing the biblical text and developing theological statements and formulations, right? So it's an inductive approach. You're looking at the text, and then you're trying to develop what are these texts saying, right? And you're trying to pull out not only what the text says, are there implications of the text, how do these texts work together right so it's it's a it's a matter of formulating right And, and and bringing these things together so um uh um and uh yeah and let me talk about this process of induction or inference right so when we think biblical theological think of like it's like the groundwork of what leads to systematic theology you're really trying to canvas the whole scope of scripture and think about the holy spirit Now, what is redemptive historical, right? So, okay, so so what does that mean? Well, the Bible is recording, or, or not recording as though it's still going on, but it is the record of the history of redemption. What do we mean by that? What is the history of redemption? So that's God's saving acts as they start, not only as he enters creation, and then we have fall, right, with Adam and Eve, and then we have all the saving acts of God from Genesis, Genesis 3 onward, right? And so it's going to build in the Old Testament and then find its fulfillment in Christ and then in his people in, in, the, in the New Testament, right? So it's this idea of looking at the history of redemption, God's saving acts for his people as it develops from the Old Testament into the New. And uh, if you guys remember from Sunday School a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Right? The exalted Christ sitting, ruling, and reigning at the Father's right hand. And then he pours out the Holy Spirit, and that enters this messianic age, right? It's like the age of the Spirit, so, which is really this um, uh, bringing in of the new creation, right? Um, so we're, we're, we will get to that and, and thinking about some of those things in some of the future chapters. So biblical, theological, just think canvassing all the biblical texts and trying to formulate putting these things together. Redemptive historical tracing the Holy Spirit from inception of the text right from the start in Genesis, and then how does that develop with time and we see God's saving acts, right like Exodus or New Exodus when we get to the prophets or with the coming of Christ. so so we will be looking at the spirit's identity and work so because we're going to be spending so much time focusing on in the biblical text, what I wanted to do was just take maybe five or ten minutes and help us think together about what is the history of the church thought about the Holy Spirit. Because if you spent any time thinking about the Holy Spirit, I'm sure there are questions that come to your mind, right? Uh, Or especially when we think about even the modern charismatic movement, where it can introduce these categories or thoughts about the Holy Spirit. Well, is that biblical? Is that bringing in what was going on with the apostles? Is that really what, you know, thing, things of that nature. So, so before we get into the history of theology, right, or the, the tracing of this idea in church history, I just wanted to whet your appetite. So on your notes, you can see, like, all right, what are the subjects we're going to be looking at here, right? So if you look at the bottom, what is it we're going to cover basically over the summer and then into the into the beginning of the fall? Well, so chapter 1, um, is on um, the Holy Spirit and history. And it's really going to trace the Holy Spirit in the um, Old and New Testament. What, what are the words, Ruach and uh, Numa, what, what, what do they mean? What, what are they conveying? What should we learn from this, right? What's implied in those? And then, chapter two, we're going to look at the Spirit of Christ. And that's the relationship of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And there's going to be this emphasis on resurrection and eschatology that when christ was ascended on high he poured out the spirit and it it becomes so registered as the spirit of christ and we're going to work out okay what does that mean what are the implications there then we're going to look at in uh, the third uh, third chapter the gift of the holy spirit so that's going to be this idea of the pouring out of the holy spirit and the new testament implications chapter four pentecost today we're going to survey the book of acts and when we look at Pentecost. What happened in Acts chapters 1 and 2 is that to be repeated, right? Because there are people who think about spirit baptism differently today, right? So how should we think about that? Is this this post I became a Christian and now I have the baptism of the Holy Spirit secondly or at a different point in time? Then we'll think about uh, the spirit of order, which we will be thinking about uh, the order of salvation. We think about the spirit and then union with Christ and that union with Christ is really going to kick off like the remaining chapters, right? We're going to explore what does that mean as we think about our our identity in Christ or being with Christ or being raised with Christ, some of those phrases, right? And how that relates with the Holy Spirit. So then just some of the other ones, spiritist, recreator, recreator, right? Thinking about regeneration, Holy Spirit and uh, holiness, right? Thinking about sanctification, the communion of the Spirit. And so that's going to think about the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there's some really important implications there. The spirit and the body, or that is specifically the corporate body or the corporate church of Christ. Gifts of ministry will even tackle subjects related to tongues and prophecy. Thinking about some of those things that have been brought up in particular with the charismatic movement. And then lastly, uh, the cosmic spirit. Thinking about end times. How does the Holy Spirit relate to the fulfillment of all things, the new creation, the new heavens, and new earth. So again, just to whet your appetite, to me this is like super exciting stuff as we think about how the Holy Spirit is involved in each of these aspects because if we really think about it, when we think about the Holy Spirit, what do we normally think of, right? We think of salvation, right? How the Holy Spirit was, uh, um, uh, how the Holy Spirit Uh, worked in our lives when we came to know the Lord, right? And then like maybe this ongoing work in sanctification, but we have a tendency not to think in these other terms or other categories. So very exciting stuff. All right. So that was by way of introduction. And now in regards to background, historical theology. So what I want to do is just take us, um, do a real quick high level overview. So when we think about the history of the church, here, here's kind of like some of these like major developments when we think about the history of theology related to the Holy Spirit. So we can think about the early church. There were the four ecumenical councils or the universal councils. So we think about the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381. And that one right there, again, I know these are just like, you know, like, okay, these are places, what's going on here. This is a really important one because it was the Council of Constantinople that really spelled out and helped to formulate not only the doctrine of the Trinity from Nicaea, right, like the Nicene Creed, but it really helped to explain in better terms the person and identity of the Holy Spirit. And we'll, we'll explain that in just, just a minute. And then we go into uh, a little bit of the medieval time, Reformation, and then post-Reformation, so Calvin, Puritans, and then we think of even today um, some of the movements in evangelicalism like the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement, right? So just some of these like, you know, major milestones when you think of um, uh, um, theology in the church. So, so let, let's think about this. So I want to start out with a quote from Greg Allison in his historical theology book, where he says, the church has historically believed that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, fully God and, quote, equal with God the Father and God the Son. When the deity of the Spirit was denied, the early church marshaled biblical and theological support along with appeals to the church's worship of the Spirit and its baptism in the name of the Spirit in support of the Spirit's deity or being God. The church has also historically embraced the most multifaceted ministry of the Holy Spirit, including his conviction of sin, his work of regeneration, the ongoing work of um, uh, work in believers, his sealing ministry, spiritual gifts, illumination of scripture, etc. Relatively little disagreement has existed among Christians about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Some points of debate include the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. And this is the distinction between uh, the Roman Catholic and Protestant churches from the uh, Eastern Orthodox churches, which believe um, that the Spirit only proceeds from the Father, whereas like Protestant churches believe the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so, um, yeah, and so then that just kind of introduces, so there's there is overall agreement when we think about the person and work of the Spirit, but then there have been divergences, especially when we talk about uh, in the medieval ages, there was this identity with the spirit primarily or exclusively with the sacraments. And that was a part of the Reformation where it was, no, the spirit is at work apart from the sacraments. So, yes, the spirit is not work through the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, but not only those things, also in other ways. And that was a, that was, that was a big shift from the medieval uh, time period. And then when we get into the Reformation, like Calvin, he was called a theologian of the Holy Spirit. We don't normally think of Calvin as the theologian of the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, uh, that, that was a major part of, of his ministry when we think about the Reformation, and then we get into some of the Pentecostal and charismatic steps as we get further on. So one of the things that, that will come up when we think about the history of theology related to the Holy Spirit is a lot of things were hammered out in the first 100, 200 years after the time of the Apostles, but it really focused on the Son of God, right, and the Trinity, with, with, with in particular, focus on the Son of God, right? And the Holy Spirit wasn't so much downplayed or dismissed as it was so much attention was given to the relationship of Father and the Son. And Harold O.J. Brown, in his book, Heresies, helpful, again, helpful historical theology work, he, he states why the Holy Spirit developed so slowly when we talk about the early church. And to me, I find this really helpful, because I actually find myself, you know when I think about the Holy Spirit, why is it that I have a hard time putting some of these constructions together? And I found it, found it illuminating. The Holy Spirit was associated with the Father and the Son from the very earliest Christian times because of the well-known baptismal formula in Matthew 28, to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But exactly what was meant by the term Holy Spirit long remained unclear. It could not really be given a final form until the doctrine of the deity and the distinct personhood of the Son had been properly established. The language of the New Testament permits the Holy Spirit to be understood as an impersonal force or influence more readily than it does the Son. So let me just qualify, right? Because you might have like antennas up, like did he just call the Holy Spirit a force? No, what he was saying is that it can, with the way that the Holy Spirit is described, it can be misinterpreted more easily, right? Where the uh, where the spirit is impersonal versus when we think of familial or family type terms like father and son, we immediately think person, right? So that's all he's saying, right? Is there was this almost confusion. It it could be more easily confused or misinterpreted. And really, this wasn't hammered out into the fruition of Constantinople in 381. And there's a number of reasons why the personhood of the spirit took longer to acknowledge than that of the son. First, the term pneuma, right? That's the Greek word for spirit. It is translated when we don't think in a theological sense. Another way to translate it is breath. And we're going to get into that as we go through some of these biblical texts in in a little bit. But in, in, in Greek, that the, the, the gender of this noun, pneuma, is neuter, right? So it's not masculine and it's not um, feminine. It's neuter, right? And so uh, if it's neuter, it generally implies a lack of personhood. And let me give you an example. When we think of wind, wind is an impersonal force, right? But we would not describe it with, like, necessarily a masculine or a feminine way to describe it, right? It's not a person. Whereas, um, uh, but we could describe it with something that's neuter, like when we use, like, the the term it, right? Where it it lacks some of those um, uh, distinctions. Secondly, uh, the distinctive work of the Holy Spirit influencing the believer does not necessarily seem as personal as that of the Father in creating the universe out of nothing, Or of the Son in redeeming mankind. Um, In addition, those who saw the Spirit as a person were often heretical in in the earliest parts of the early church. We're thinking of like the first 100 years, there was this group called the Montanists. And they were heretical, but they saw the Holy Spirit as a person. So again, it's just going to muddy the waters, right? Where when you think about associations, well, how should we think about that? Because the people that said that 100 years ago were heretics on these other levels, right? They believe these false things about God on these other levels. All right, and thirdly, many of the early theologians attributed to the logos or the word, right? And we think about Jesus as the word incarnate, right? So they would attribute to the logos or the word the revelatory activity that theologians later saw as the special personal work of the Holy Spirit in his work in revelation and in illuminating the scripture to us. So, again, those are just some helpful things. And it's interesting because I can I can sense that even in myself. Right. So that's why it took longer in the early church. And then briefly, all, all I want to. Um. I don't want to labor this for too long, but all I want to do is just point out, so um, Roger Olson in his work, The Story of Christian Theology, again, just getting into some of the history here, what exactly was hammered out when we talk about the Council of Constantinople, right? What, what was it that took place? Well, basically, they took the Nicene Creed, which was, was a major, major document, right? When we think about, it was, it was the Uh, first what we call the ecumenical creeds that really helped hammer out the doctrine of the trinity. But if you read the first form of the Nicene Creed, it basically just says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And it's like, that's it, right? So it it, it leaves this really open. And it wasn't until Constantinople where Basil the Great, Basil of Caesarea, comes on the scene, and and he he writes in his book uh, On the Holy Spirit, Super helpful work. And he really says, hey, we're focusing so much on this relationship between the Father and the Son, which is really important, right? Bring some of these things into clarity, making sure we're affirming the right things, not, not confusing um, when we think about God, Trinity, Father and Son. But he says, we basically have neglected the Holy Spirit. We really need to focus on this. And uh, so he really wrote the first whole treatise on the person of the Holy Spirit, And that ended up, it it was so instrumental that they ended up revising the Nicene Creed and then adding an entire, like, full sentence to the Creed related to the Holy Spirit. Really helping, providing definition there that the Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son and also affirmed that the Spirit is a distinct person, or the technical term is hypostatis. Right, so we think he's equal with the Father and the Son. There's one essence, but he is the third person of what we call the Trinity. So that was really hammered out when we think about um, when we think about the, um, co- the the Ecumenical Council of Constantinople and then really revising that that Nicene Creed. So, all right. So what's going on here? Right, big picture. Where are we going? It's helpful for us to remember. We are not new coming on the scenes, Johnny on the spot, and our interpretation is going to be the first interpretation of the Holy Spirit. We have 2,000 years of help. And it is to our shame if we neglect it, right? Now again, what we're going to be going through with this is not so much a work of historical theology, it is biblical theological, but it's helpful for us to remember what has taken place leading up to where we are today and what has influenced our thinking, especially when we think about the different backgrounds we've come out of, right? I come out of a Roman Catholic background. Maybe some of you have come out of charismatic or Pentecostal backgrounds, right? Different, where we we can associate different things with the spirit. All right. So, on your notes, Holy Ruach. So now we're going to really kind of get into the meat, uh, um, the the first part of chapter one from Ferguson's book here. And, And he... He, he points out, uh, he draws from this work from Abraham Kuyper on the Holy Spirit, which, which um, so Ferguson basically said, if you're going to read two books on the Holy Spirit, one is by John Owen, right? Um, pro- probably the, the prince theologian of, uh, of England, right? We think about the, Purit- the times of the Puritans. And then the other work was by Abraham Kuyper, right? Two works that he said, that these were like, the, you know, these, these are the, if you, if you want to get additional books on the Holy Spirit, these are the. And, he's, and so he quotes Abraham Kuyper and says, we know not what spirits are, nor what our own spirit is. And I think if we take a minute, we struggle, how do you define spirit, right? And, and normally the first thing comes to mind is we basically say what it's not. Well, a spirit is something that doesn't have matter, right? It's, 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 it's uh, immaterial, right? And then, you know, may, maybe a couple other associations. So... So this week and next week, what we're going to focus on in particular are the biblical texts from the Old Testament and the New Testament to really help shape our mind. What does the Bible mean when it talks about spirit, in particular, related to God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity? All right, so so when it says holy ruach, what, what is it saying? Well, the word ruach is the Hebrew term, for the word that we use, spirit. But it's also used, you know, it, it, can, it can also be used for other things, right? And, and we see this even with the Greek word pneuma. Um, it can be used for air, it can be used for wind, or even like a violent storm. There, there's, there's many different ways that that word can be translated. And so when we think of Holy Spirit, uh, I'll, I'll, I'd like to go ahead and just ask the group when we think of the word holy, what are some of the um, uh, words or concepts that come to mind when we think of the word holy? So it's not a rhetorical question. It's asking for input. What do you guys think of when you think of the term holy? What, what, is, what is that drawing to mind? What word pictures or maybe definition or ways to characterize it? I think purity, I remember also learning sign language and you and then you do the sign for Interesting. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there's this aspect of... Um, uh, purity and clean, like cleanliness, but it's not like your room is clean. It's like moral, cl- moral cleanness, right? Like you could enter God's special presence because you were holy and clean in that sense. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, set apart. Yes. So this idea of consecration. Yeah. Set apart to someone from something else. I was going to say set apart, but um, also maybe we could say like the whole thing. sinless. Yes. Yes, yes, there's this perfect conformity to the to the glory of God's moral excellence. Yep, excellent, right? So there's this, there's this moral or ethical aspect. There's also this consecration aspect. And I think all of those are helpful word categories or concepts when we think about the term holy. And um, I just want to, uh, I think what Ferguson said was really helpful, that he says that... Um, there's a general consensus, consensus when we think of the term holy that it connotes such ideas as to be cut off or separate from, to be placed at a distance, and hence to be set apart in order to belong to God. And then he says, employing the spatial language, so spatial meaning like there's a distance, right, when we think about, think about that, uh, metaphorically, where the Old Testament underlines the otherness of the Spirit's being. So, when we think about otherness, um, holiness can talk about consecration, but there's also this idea of otherness from the standpoint that God is not like us, right? And, and, it's, and it's, it goes back to this creator and creature distinction, right? And so that, that's implied in this idea of holy, that, that God is not like you and me, right? There's a sense in which we are like God because we're made in his image. But, but I think what we need to remember is this creator-creature distinction, God is not like us, right? And, and, and that's implied when we think about holy. So, um, and uh, um, in, in, in the book, I really found it helpful where Ferguson talks about, in Isaiah 6, 1 and 2, where he talks about how the Lord is lifted high, right? It's, and, and, and Isaiah talks about how he's seen the Lord, holy, 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 right? And then his response is, woe is me, I'm unclean. And, and, and it talks about the train of his robe filled the temple, right? Or, or, you know, you look in like the ESV, it'll have like a little footnote, like the, the hem of his garment, right? So his, um, and, and, I, and I, what Ferguson points out that I thought was really insightful is that it brings out this distance idea, right? It's like God is high, he's exalted, he's lofty, and, and, then, and then what's implied with that? Isaiah is, he's pushed out from the court, right? The, the train of his robe is filling the temple, and where is Isaiah? He's, he's pushed out, Right. So this idea of um, uh, uh, being high, lifted up, there's this distance created right? when we think about God's holiness. So um, so just helpful when we think about the Holy Spirit, these categories or ideas are going to be involved. All right. So so let's kind of hop into it. Um, so let's ask. Let's ask the question. Um, when you hear the term spirit, what comes to mind? What do you think of when you hear the term spirit? Yes, yeah, like it goes back to the catechism, catechism question where it says, um, right, God is a spirit and does not have a body like us, right? Where it's like, all right, perfect, all right. What else? When we think about the word spirit, what else comes to mind? I think of like the, the older translations like a ghost, so I can of think of that, that element of it too. Yes, yes, and and I will say that, um, you Because people, you know, I say people, but like, you know, older generations, like hundreds of years ago, using the term ghost. And for me, becoming a new believer, I really struggled with that, right? It's like, because what came to mind when I heard the word ghost was like, you're on a ghost tour and like all that kind of stuff, right? And you're like, holy ghost. And you're like, all right, this is like, this is breaking some categories for me, right? Because, you know, um, all right. No, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where um, all these things like um, like your mind, right, is not your actual brain, right? It works in coordination with your brain, but it's something separate, right? Um, or we think about heart, the same kind of idea. All those can be um, included when we think about this idea of the Hebrew word nefesh, where, where it talks about spirit or person, right? This, 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 this whole whole picture together. All right. So... So what are we going to cover for the remainder of this class? We're going to look at the Holy Spirit when we think about him um, in general in regards to how do we how do we think of the term uh, Ruach in the Old Testament? And then we're going to, uh, on your notes, then we're going to look at Creator Spiritus, right? We think about the Spirit in the work of creation. All right. So, um, uh, so... Both the term ruach and then the Greek word pneuma are onomatopoeias, right? And what that means is their physical formation of the term and their sound convey a sense of their basic meaning. Uh, specifically, the expulsion of wind or breath or the idea of air in motion, right? So we say ruach, right? It's this, it's this, it's this exit, right? And same thing with pneuma, right? It's, so we, we have that in English with words that are onomatopoeias. Um, and so the idea of spirit expresses in its most fundamental form, we, we can think of the term or phrase, the breath of life. It, it has this idea, and write this down, of the idea of power, energy, and life. Power, energy, and life, right? Or when we think about air in motion, right? It's not static. It's, it's in motion. It's dynamic. So um, we'll skip over the Hellenistic philosophy. All right. Um uh, So, and again, one of the things that we talked about earlier, right when we thought about that catechism question is the spirit right we think, when, when we say that God is spirit and does not have a body like us we 're thinking it in terms of immateriality that it 's not this like material thing or item right like 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 like, like um a, a body is, and so But that is not really the emphasis of the Old Testament. The emphasis is not immateriality. The emphasis is power or motion. Um, And uh, and so while it can be implied, that is not what what it's really going after, right? And so um, uh, when we talk about um, this idea of like air in motion, it's often manifested in the natural order as a powerful wind or storm and maybe if someone can turn in Job chapter 1. We'll just take a quick look because um, we've got a couple texts that we're going to look at. So we'll try to look at them quickly just to kind of help like, all right, here, here's, you know, here's the statement. Here's the text just to help kind of uh, point some of these things out. So in Job chapter 1, let's look at uh, uh, verse 19 just to give, give us an example. And if I can have a volunteer, whoever gets there, just go ahead and read it. All right, perfect. And the word there for wind is the Hebrew word ruach, right? So, um, all right. And then, uh, but then there's this second idea. And in perhaps, this is what Ferguson says, in perhaps more than a quarter of the Old Testament ins- instances, uh, or no, that's, I'm sorry, that's related to wind. And then, so there's this idea of the life breath of the individual, right? We think about um, uh, what it is, you know, that's inside us and that animates us, right? We think about our own spirit, right? And so, turn with me, a um, uh, uh, First Kings. So go um, uh, go back a little bit before Chronicles. So First Kings. And and again, if you want to do um, your own like Bible word study, hopefully this is just going to help supplement that. Right when you look at the term ruach, you're going to see all these different ways that it, that it's used. So in First Kings chapter ten, that's really what 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 this chapter is. It's just let's do a really good. Um, uh, biblical word study. And then, can I have someone read uh, verses uh, 4 and 5? 1 Kings 10, 4 and 5. When the Queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he had built, the, king of the food at his table, his servants' residence, his attendant servants in their attire, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings, he offered at the Lord's temple it took her breath away. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 You're like, where is he going with this? Yeah, but it's the very end. So when it says that it took her breath away, what's the term for breath? It's the term ruach, right? So you know, we've heard the phrase, right? It was so amazing, it was breathless. But but in the Hebrew, it is literally that she had no more ruach, right? Like it was it was taken out from her because she was in such amazement. So we see that as this life. Um, life spirit, right? Um, And so it can even refer to human activity, right? Um, Where it's not simply like breathing, which can be like a very calm thing, right? But it can even be this very worked up, um, like snorting, right? But not snorting where you're snorting in, like you're snorting out, right? Um, And it gets used in that, like uh, in 2 Samuel, we won't turn there, but just an example, 2 Samuel 22, 16, where it talks about the Lord and the blast of the breath of his nostrils, right? The ruach of his nostrils. But, but it's something very violent, right? Kind of coming out. Again, it's just helping us to portray this idea of ruach or spirit is this idea of motion or even very powerful motion or air. <clears throat> And so, uh, but, but really, I think a text that brings this out well, and, and I really like this. So turn, turn with me to the minor prophets. So again, I know we're kind of um, exploring our way through the Bible. So if you will, go to the book of Micah. Um, and Micah chapter 3. So it goes Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. And in Micah chapter 3, we'll look at Micah 3 and verse 8. And I think this really brings this out really well. If I can have a volunteer... Yeah, just go ahead. You're there. As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. All right. So do you guys see that association, what's going on there? Right? Do you see the connection in the text? Right? In verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with what? Power. Power. Right? With the Spirit of the Lord. Those, those ideas are so associated... That it can be expressed where they almost look the same, right? Now, power does not mean that it is one for one with spirit, but they are so associated together, right? That we should pick that up. That when we think of spirit, we're thinking of power. We're thinking of um, uh, even, even like violent storms, right? Where, where it's this idea of, of um, breath and motion, right? Air and motion. All right, so, uh, and um, I was going to say Spurgeon uh, Ferguson, he, he says, divine spirit thus denotes the energy of life in God. Um, the energy of life in God. And I, and I found that helpful. Um, all right, I want to do just one more and then, and then we'll go to creator Spiritus. I want to make sure I give us, give us time for that. Um, so turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah thirty-one three. So now go, you know, major prophets, if you will. Let's go to Isaiah. So um, Isaiah right in the middle. And go to Isaiah, um, where is it, 31. And we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 3. Again, it's just going to bring out this idea. And to me, it was really illuminating because I didn't think about the Spirit in these terms. And it's helpful when we are picking them up as inferences out of the text, right? Let it inform and renew our mind. So Isaiah 31, uh, verses 1 through 3. If someone would be willing, just go ahead. When you're there, just go ahead and read. Verse 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will rise, arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. All right, excellent. So what I want to do is just quickly summarize. So what, what does this have to do when we think about the term spirit? Well, you can see the danger of Israel was to rely on Egypt instead of the Lord, right? They're going to rely on all their horses and their chariots, all this stuff, right? And then look in verse three. Look, look at the way that this is categorized. The Egyptians are man and not God, right? And 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 it's meant to have this jab, right? You're looking to go to them instead of me. And then look what it says. And their horses are flesh and not what? Spirit. Well, what is it that the horses convey? The horses convey power, military might in action that'll just trample down enemies, right? And what does he say? He associates it with this idea of flesh. Right. Where it's like, hey, look, you are going to lean on man and flesh and horses, but that's not power. What is power is spirit. Right. And isn't that just amazing, right, that that the word is so associated there with God and spirit that it has that idea behind it. So really interesting. Right. And it's one of those things where I can't tell you how many times you've read over that. I've read over that and haven't even thought twice about that. I haven't even thought about that kind of connection that seems latent in the text. So, um, oh man, there's, there's some really good stuff that I'll just recommend reading the book, right? Um, you can get it from Ferguson himself, uh, where, where, he, uh, where he just talks about the results of the activity of the spirit are in keeping with its nature. So he looks at different things going on, violent storms, um, the spirit at work in regards to the words of God, some of these different, different associations, very powerful things, but we are not going to look at them as much as I would really like to. Um, so, so what have we covered? So we thought about the Holy Spirit, and right. So, right. So let's just go ahead and make a distinction. When we talk about spirit, when when we say Holy Spirit, it's not so much the idea that He's not a body, right, or this immateriality. It's that it is power, or this idea of 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 um of like air in motion and powerfulness, right? This life breath if you will, right? That might be the better way to put it. And so now, so now, um, and and, and, and uh, I, this is a really helpful transition. Ferguson says, already, however, it is clear from the various biblical references above that ruach, or spirit, denotes more than simply the energy of God. It describes, it describes God extending himself in active engagement with his creation in a personal way. And then Ferguson asked the question, well, then how does all that relate? When we think about terms like Trinity and the spirit as a person. And he's like, hey, you know what? Awesome questions. Future chapter. Right. So basically punts. So here's what we're going to do. So we will get to that. All right. Don't worry. There's plenty. You come back. But uh, <laughs> with. So um, let's go ahead and take Take, we'll take a minute. Does anyone have any questions so far? Was there anything that like stuck out where you're like, oh, that was really interesting, you know, just kind of struck a nerve or whatever, with what we've kind of covered so far on the historical theology or even kind of looking at the Holy Spirit and this idea of the life breath. I just love that thought of it, of the Spirit being power. Because I think before, it's like when I think of the Spirit, it's more of like the less powerful Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Go through walls and like, yeah. you know, just like hovering and like yeah. doing things like that. Yeah. Yep. So it's just helpful. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. Just like a general thought, I guess, like, you know, like when the Lord told his disciples that it would be better for them that he leaves because the spirit was going to come. Mm-hmm. And we think, oh, those disciples, they didn't understand. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. But like, for me personally, I think uh, if I could have Jesus with me all the time, <laughs> yeah. I mean, would I really pick the Holy Spirit? And yes. Like, so I, I, don't think I get it either. So yes yeah. No, listen, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah. Because you read that text and you're like, yeah, what would I think that if I had Jesus next to me, where he's like, no, it's better that I leave, and you're like, how could you say that? Right. You know, like, and again, I want to be careful with how I say that, but, but you know, like yeah. internally, you're just like, I struggle with that, yeah. you know, and uh, yeah. So we we will get to that because that's a really helpful helpful thing right when we kind of think about yeah that question and some of those texts when we get to the upper room discourse in john john 13 14 etc 15 17 so all right on your notes let's take a look at creator spiritus right and um i will probably just need to do like latin translations for some of these things that ferguson does you're like i gotta tell you there's just words that he threw out there literally i'm like all right break out the dictionary i have no idea what this man just said right where it's just like this is but but nevertheless like still really really helpful helpful thoughts so so let's talk about creation and let's talk about the spirit of god there uh and i don't think this happens as much on like a popular level or in church but like especially in academia there can be a tendency especially because of the Enlightenment, where people look at Genesis 1-2 and they see evangelical Christians right today who say, man, this is the third person of the Trinity. We see it in Genesis 1-2. They're like, hold on, time out. Nope, that's not what's going on at all, right? And they they come up with these different explanations and whatnot. And and Ferguson kind of works through that in the book. We're not going to go through that. If if you find that helpful, go for it. But what I want to do is really hone in how does the Bible see the Spirit of God at work and what does it mean for the Spirit of God to hover over the face of the waters, right in Genesis one two, it's very fascinating, right? You think about that, and you're like, mm. like that word "hover," right? You're like, okay, well, what what's coming to mind? So let, let's go to let's go to that text. Let's go to Genesis one and let's read verses one and two, because it's and, and what we're what we're about to do to me is really important for hermeneutics because we're going to go to other texts in the Old Testament that. That are going to use similar, or not similar. They're going to use the same words found in Genesis one and two, and it's going to make some of these connections related to the Holy Spirit, and uh, uh, creation, and then and then this theme of Exodus. So, um, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. So, if uh, can I have someone read uh, Genesis one verses one and two? When you get there, just go ahead and read it. Perfect. Yep. And that last phrase there, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right. And I got to be honest. Right. There's a lot of enigma when we when we first read that. We were like, all right, what is going on here? Right. Like wh- what exactly is taking place? So the um, so let, let's talk about. So the verb that's translated for hovering can conve- conveys this idea of shaking or fluttering. Right. And, and it's used in Jeremiah 23, 9 where it's talking about the shaking of, of bones, where it says, my heart is broken within me, all my bones, and this is the same word, shake, right? So it's, it's not used that often in the Old Testament, but when it is used, it has this idea of shaking or fluttering. Okay, so what does that mean where it's the Holy Spirit that's shaking or fluttering over over the waters, right? <clears throat> so now we're going to look at some of these deliberate connections of authors in the Old Testament that are going to be making some of these connections. And I, and I don't want us to lose the forest from the trees because what they're basically going to do is talk about how the Holy Spirit is this creative life that orders creation, right? Third person of the Trinity that's at work ordering, forming, governing what, what's taking place, right? And what we're going to do is look at some of these texts that are going to make some of these connections where it uses these these same words. So the first text I want us to look at is Isaiah 63. And while you're turning to Isaiah 63, I'm going to turn with you. um, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Isaiah 63 and Deuteronomy uh, 32. These two texts, and we're going to see how it talks about in Isaiah 63 that it is the Holy Spirit who is the executor of the exodus. But then when we read Deuteronomy 32, we're gonna see that it talks about God as the one who executes the exodus and creates Israel as a covenant nation before him. And, and the terms that are used are the same terms from Genesis one, verses one and two. And this is very intentional. Right, You've heard of the phrase, how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. But really, the first question we should ask is, how does the Old Testament interpret the Old Testament? Right? Later revelation, interpret earlier revelation. All right, so we're in Isaiah uh, 63, and we're going to read verses 7 um, through 14. And let's just go ahead and read. I'll, I'll read. Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who do not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his holy spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the uh, in the desert they did not stumble like livestock that go down in the valley, the spirit of the Lord gave them. Rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So we see that multiple times talking about the Holy Spirit, and He's talking about when He redeemed His people, and He brought them out of ex, uh, um, um, not out of exodus, out of Egypt, right? Using terms like redeem or coming out of ex, um, out of exile, um, and, um, and delivering them and making them a people, right? So we see it's the Holy Spirit who's the um, executor of the Exodus. Now, turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. Now, I will say, now, when we look at this text, it's not clear at first, right? We're going to start making these connections. And I want to help make the connections for us to see what's taking place. So in Deuteronomy 32, and we're going to read. Can I have a, a volunteer to read verses 10 and 11? So Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 And 11. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Excellent. All right. So here, here and, and again, like I said, in English, you're like, all right, so w- what's going on here? How, do, how does this relate, right? How, how does this relate to what's going on? So first, what I want to point out in verse 10, um, in verse 10, where it says, so so, what's going on is it's talking about God and it's talking about Israel, his covenant people, right? It's the song of Moses. And basically, if you read the whole thing where it's it's describing how God took in these people, right? He talked about the table of nations and how he, he picked Israel. It was his special people. He brought them. He nourished them. And, and basically, then the, the rest of the song is how Israel rebelled and then God's going to exile them and punish them as his covenant people as a result and then he'll restore them. So it's this, it's this whole song basically talking about what's going to happen to Israel, right? Repeating themes earlier on from, from Genesis. So, but in verse 10, he says, when he found him in a desert land... And then notice this, in the howling waste, right? Now, again, we're not going to pick up on this, but the Hebrew term here is the term tohu. All right, now, what does that have to do? Keep your finger there. Go back to Genesis 1 real quick. In Genesis 1, and in verse 2, where it says, um, uh, the earth was without form and void. And the term used there is tohu, right? So it's going back and using language from Genesis one two, right, where it talks about that um, he basically found this people and they were in this they were in this waste. It was void, right? It was, it was formless. And then in verse eleven, he says, "Like an eagle that stirs up its nest," and then that term that flutters is the same Hebrew term for hover, right? Okay, so so what does that mean? We have two technical terms that Moses is picking up on to help Israel connect with what's going on from the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis 1, verse 2. And so when it talks about um, how he encircled them and cared for them and found them in, in, in this in this wilderness and basically brought them in, it's implying this idea of... Exodus, where they were delivered, right? Exodus, where we think about uh, in, in in chapter fourteen, and then brought in verses nineteen and twenty, then brought into covenant with God, and then God leads them into the the wilderness after giving them His laws. So, what so what does that mean? What is the connection here? This this deliberate analogy is drawn in the Old Testament between this. Hovering of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2 over you know this initial form of creation, right? This beginning form, and then the presence of the Spirit of God who leads in the Exodus to then create a people, right? So what's the emphasis? What again? It's like we were like really deep in the trees, now it's like step back, right? Like what just happened? What just happened is we're seeing with these different texts how when we see in Genesis 1-2, it's the Spirit that is ordering and creating. So we have God the Father, right, and His role in creation. And then we have God the Spirit, who is this this breath of life, who is ordering and creating, right, and, and, and governing what is taking place in creation in the same way that God did when He delivered His people... From the Exodus, and then made them a covenant people when he created a covenant people with himself. That's the big idea. That's the connection, right? And so we're seeing these ideas as we, as we, as we build on this idea from Genesis 1 2. <clears throat> All right. Um, a text that is worth looking up is Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30 where it conveys this idea. We do not have time to to look at it. And what I want to end with, right, as we've looked at the Holy Spirit, the idea of Ruach in the Old Testament, and then this idea of the Spirit at work in creation, what I want to end with is this really helpful quote from Ferguson, where he says, What is of interest is that the activity of the Divine Spirit is precisely that of extending God's presence into creation in such a way as to order and complete what has been planned in the mind of God. And this is exactly what the role of the Spirit characteristically fulfills elsewhere in Scripture. Right? So it is the activity of the divine Spirit extending God's presence into creation in order to order and complete what was planned in the mind of God. Unfortunately, we, will, we don't have time for questions. I, I, got a, I went over, so I apologize. But really enjoyed that. And then next week, we're going to carry on this idea as we, as we trace what, what's going on in the, in the Holy, in the, with the Holy Spirit in other major events throughout the Old Testament and into the into the New Testament. So let's, let's go ahead and close and thank the Lord for our time. Lord God, we worship you. We thank you for our time. We pray through the power of the Holy Spirit. Continue to nourish, nourish us through your word. Feed us. Strengthen us. Give us the grace we need to live for your glory, knowing that you are good and you always do good. Prepare our hearts as we now go to enter into corporate worship together as we, will, as we your people, gather. In Jesus' name, amen.